Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Stuart Patrick, is an international relations scholar with a background in studying human evolution. And as you might imagine, that combination makes for some fascinating conversation. Stuart is a senior fellow and director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a Rhodes Scholar who has studied the intersection of the evolution of culture and international relations, and we have some great digressions about how culture contributes to the creation of international norms and international law. In the early 2000s, he received a fellowship to serve on the policy planning staff of Colin Powell State Department, and he discusses two big lessons he drew from that experience, the power of ideology to shape policy and how bureaucratic politics can influence big decisions. We kick off discussing his newest project, which is the Global Governance Report Card, which grades international performance in addressing a specter of current global challenges. As always, if you are new to the podcast, willkommen, bienvenue, kok dila, shalom. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, check out our archives, subscribe on iTunes, get the app. It's all there. If you're a returning listener, thanks for returning and listening. I think you like this one. We get It gets kind of heady at, at, at points talking about culture and the evolution of norms, but stick with me. I, I think you'll like it. I, I know I learned a lot from this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And now here is Stuart Patrick from the Council on Foreign Relations. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, what we found, uh, interestingly, given all the hand-wringing about how badly uh, the international system is doing um, in, and, and all the sort of very negative headlines, is that um, the overall performance uh, in terms of as assessed by these think tank leaders was that the world had done uh, an entire letter grade better than it had done in the previous year uh, when it, when the average was a C. In this case, the average was a B, which I think surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like that. I mean, there is this sort of pervasive sense, if you just look at the headlines, that things are going to hell in a handbasket all over the world. But in fact, like if you look at sort of broader trends, things are, are sort of going in the right direction in a lot of different issues. And I, I noticed, like, in particular, you guys singled out climate change and, and development as pushing up sort of the, the global aggregate, right? Absolutely. And there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, variation uh, amongst the grades in the different uh, issue areas. But no question that climate change and development were major bright spots during um, 2015. You know, the headline, of course, is with, with respect to, um, to climate change uh, in Paris and the, the agreement that was reached there. Now, I'll be the first to say that, look, even if the commitments made in Paris come through, that experts um, estimate that, that 
still the world will only get about one third of the way in terms of um, a reduction of greenhouse gas emissions than it would have, than, than sort of the baseline trajectory, one third of the reductions it needs to prevent the world from uh, going over uh, two degrees Celsius, which has been um, the target for a while. But part, in part, thanks to um, the efforts, the bilateral agreement between Xi Jinping and uh, Barack Obama, uh, a few months beforehand in terms of their what they were planning to do in, in the United States and China, uh, that created some momentum, um, suggesting that the United States and China, that's the two biggest emitters, of course, were going to bring uh, major uh, commitments to the table. And that helped um, the world um, move forward. And, and there's, a, there's a whole, uh, which we can pick up later, but there's a, there's a whole um, a lesson there, I think, to be learned in terms of uh, of strategies for more effective uh, global governance or international cooperation, if you will. Another uh, issue was... Well, hold on, let, let, let's, let's stay, let's stay sure. on that, that thread, because that's interesting. So the, so, so the strategy, then, is having the two largest countries sort of set the agenda and expect others to, to fall in line behind it sort of thing? Yeah, there's a couple of lessons that come f- uh, from it. One of them is it takes leadership. And um, for the longest time, of course, um, the United States has been seen as something of an outlier in the climate change area. We obviously didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, et cetera. And there, there was a real uh, sense that um, the United States was not, and partly, obviously, there are major partisan uh, and executive legislative divisions uh, on the question of climate change in the United States. But there's also a sense that, um, that China, um, as well as other large developing countries like India, were simply unwilling to sacrifice development for and the the, the poverty reduction goals and uh, and social welfare goals that come from the just tremendous challenges that China faces internally, um, part trying to get wealthy before it gets old, um, uh, and, and basically delivering prosperity to their people. That they weren't willing to sacrifice that for something that was seemingly going to be enormously economically expensive, and so that was the big problem with a successor to the Kyoto Protocol for for the longest time was that there really was no way of bridging this gap between the so-called Annex One countries, like the United States, the developed countries, wealthy developed countries, and the Annex Two countries, which um, didn't have the same sort of responsibilities and were really shy of signing up to a binding commitment. What the, the second lesson besides leadership is that this was really a new approach to international cooperation, and it actually began the year before uh, at the Lima Conference of Parties to this UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is COP20, and then COP21 was the one that was in Paris. And basically, in, in Lima, what they decided was, or what the countries endorsed was what they called a pledge and review um, uh, system, rather than trying to to, to grapple with after 20 years, a successor to the Kyoto Protocol, what they basically decided to do is say, look, let's have what they called in individual nationally determined contributions, which is INDCs, which is a mouthful, but basically it means, look, let's have tailored commitments from each country uh, to come to the table. They are going to be appropriate to um, uh, the, the level of development of these countries, etc., but they'll be real and meaningful. And so the idea was let's let's see what countries can bring to the table in, in the way of voluntary commitments, and maybe we can cobble together something 
out of all of this that actually has some impact rather than trying to get a one-size-fits-all level of uh, commitment from each of the parties. And this has happened in a couple of other areas, too. Well, well yeah, I'd love to, to explore. So what other areas has this model now taken hold, or, or what are there opportunities for this model to take hold? Because like you said, you know, it, it's a, a collection of voluntary pledges that are made uh, as a collective. Uh, so somehow there's like additional diplomatic weight behind them because everyone is bringing them to the table and sort of making them public and, you know, saying that they will implement them on their own, uh, you know, without, say, the force of international law. Right, exactly. And have some to. down. It, it certainly, yes. Right. It doesn't have the force of international law. And, and certainly for somebody who I always thought in terms of formal institutions and, you know, binding charters and legally binding obligations, et cetera. It, you know, it, at first glance, I was very skeptical. Um it has been used in some other areas. Um, one of the most prominent is something that was an initiative by um, uh, President Obama, and uh, there were four of them. There were the nuclear security summits, and uh, the first one was hosted in the United States, and then the last one was there bi- biannual, biannual, so every two years. Um, the the most recent one also hosted the United States, and basically what um, countries did, and this was about 48, 50 countries that all had stocks of either nuclear weapons or fissile material, and the idea was how do we lock this stuff down? And the idea was, okay, let's let's have everybody come to the table with so-called gift baskets, which were basically what they would bring and say, this is what we're planning to do. Uh, you know, Japan might say, look, we've got a bunch of fissile material, but we're going to actually um, hand it over to the United States to, uh, say, uh, recycle um, or, or to, to, to some other uh, country would, would have increased safeguards on its stocks of uh, nuclear material. And as the idea was that maybe that out of the whole of this, um, you would be able to, um, from this, from the sum of the parts, you would be able to get uh, a, a major reduction in the amount of vulnerable fissile material that's out there that nefarious actors could sort of walk away with. Now, the hope is that that. And 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 I, you know, and to some degree, this is a second best effort, right? Uh, at least in in terms of um, of climate change, because it isn't legally binding. Um, but since that seemed to be elusive, um, the the hope is that this will actually come through. the The unanswered question going forward is how much um, how credible should the pledges be? We're we're really banking a lot on the force of uh, transparency and the and and the fact that these are all published. So that we're banking that civil society actors and also peer pressure will hold countries to actually uh, to their commitments, their voluntary commitments to to come through. But again, uh, there's no enforcement mechanism, and uh, they're largely aspirational. And some also will depend, frankly, uh, on whether or not countries come through with uh, some very big pledges that haven't yet been met on uh, financing to help, particularly developing countries, have the capability to make this transition to, if not immediately a post-carbon economy, then to a lower-carbon economy. Um, so are there areas, then, that you've identified in your report card that are, let's say, needing improvement, that, that got pretty terrible grades? Yes, absolutely. Um, and this suggests um, a, a, a world which is um, quite compartmentalized in a lot of different ways, um, but but that, it's doing reasonably well on certain um, cooperative challenges and less well on others. We still see... Um, uh, very poor performance when it comes to um, transnational terrorism, but then also internal conflict and then also conflict or potential conflict uh, amongst states. Um, 
uh, and that this this was similar to the previous year. Those three categories: internal conflict, uh, interstate conflict, and then terrorism had had the the weakest. They were both they were seen as both the most pressing priorities and as having um, the weakest performance. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them obviously is is the um, uh, the resurgence of um, geopolitical conflict that was not really anticipated as uh, by certainly by the Obama administration when it came in. Uh, President Obama famously stated in his 2010 national security strategy that um, that basically geopolitical. We lived in a, uh, a world now where power was less of a zero sum game, and that um, that. The, the implication was that traditional great power competition had given way to the management of shared challenges. Yeah, well, shared it turns threats. out we're, we're all living in Putin's world. That's right, exactly. Yeah, there's no question. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but between the, um, the, um, the aggression uh, in terms of the seizure of Crimea, which obviously had happened the year before, but, or uh, a bit before, but, uh, but then um, the uh, continued... Um, uh, uh, fighting uh, in Ukraine, and then on top of that, it's sort of you also get situations like Syria, which are in a sense a civil war, but also tremendously internationalized. So, um, the, I think there was a, a sense that, particularly after the Russian intervention into Syria uh, to prop up uh, Assad, that uh, that things were looking very bleak indeed, and there was a, ma- a major potential of, uh, of of even a military conflict. Um, with Russia, but even uh, equally so, um, I think a lot of alarm at uh, Chinese moves uh, in the South China Sea and to some degree the East China Sea in terms of um, very, very assertive jurisdictional and sovereignty claims um, in, in those areas and a sense that, um, that, that we were living, if not in an interstate war situation, in a situation of great volatility. Uh, with respect to um, terrorism, uh, again, I think a lot of it was this sort of surprising vitality and spread of the Islamic State and um, and the the reach of uh, whether it was a, a carefully orchestrated you know a clo- you know um, uh, tight network of uh, of jihadist organizations related to the Islamic State or or some lone wolf terrorism as well as um, some freelancing by folks that wanted to associate themselves with the Islamic State brand, much like groups had tried to do with Al Qaeda. There was a sense that um, that uh, the the international community was doing uh, much uh, much worse than it might have in in dealing with uh, with. Um, with with this threat, um, I'd love to to switch gears right now and uh, learn a, a little bit more about you. I mean, I think you probably came on my radar a while ago when you started writing the internationalist blog on on CFR, which is great. Um, but where where are you from? I'm actually from. Uh, I was born in New York City, but I grew up uh, from about age five in Montgomery County, Maryland. Actually, um, okay. just in the in believe it or not in the in the DC suburbs. So were your parents in lived- government? You know, my uh, my father um, had been uh, a Wall Street lawyer, and uh, when I was very young, we lived in Paris for about three years. Um, very young, um, and 
Then he got a job as the international tax counsel for the Treasury Department. So he came down basically and he was negotiating tax treaties around the world, um, which the tax treaty part didn't sound very interesting to me, but the around the world part sounded <laughs> extremely interesting to me. And I, my, one of my fondest memories of, of being a child, as, as it was for my two brothers, was um, you know when he would come back and often with like little trinkets and curios from you know Botswana or Brazil or Indonesia, etc. And I think. We all, um, all three of us, sort of caught a little bit of the travel international bug. So, and so, are, are tax treaties um, sort of like mechanisms by which, say, dual citizens or foreign nationals aren't like double taxed? Partly, um, a lot of it had to do with um, with uh, uh, also the issues that are still quite current, which are um, are uh, trying to equalize the playing field so that. Uh, companies don't relocate. So, I, a lot of it was that he was dealing with where it had, was about corporate taxation as opposed to um, uh, uh, individual taxation. But yes, to try to make sure that um, that the rules were at least somewhat reciprocal in terms of where corporations were paying taxes, the level uh, that they were paying taxes, and um, that uh, also to try to close down on uh, certain havens where um uh, People could, uh, where corporations could sort of stash profits uh, and and uh, evade uh, evade taxation, um, and to make sure at least there weren't any legal ways that uh, corporations could do that. So that, uh, uh, so he would um, uh, again would a lot a lot of this was done on a, on a bilateral basis, and you'd have bilateral tax treaties with different countries. So you know Montgomery County is a, a pretty cosmopolitan place. Um, when did you realize that you wanted a, a career in foreign policy? It's interesting. Um, you know, my undergraduate degree, I, I, I would have to say that, let me rephrase it. Um, I realized that uh, I wanted a career that was going to be at least international quite young. I was always um, fascinated about the world. I just didn't, well, wasn't necessarily sure that it was going to be in, uh, in foreign policy. Uh, my, uh, when I got to uh, college, I went to Stanford as an undergrad, and I almost was an international relations major, which is interesting. My older brother had been, but um, but I actually was. I studied human evolution in a program called the Human Biology Program at Stanford, which was extraordinarily multidisciplinary. And um, among other things, took me while I was an undergraduate to archaeological digs in uh, Peru in Highland Peru, uh, and at a time that Sendero Luminoso was in uh, was in Peru, which was fascinating and also a little bit scary. <laughs> and then uh, took me to a couple summers of uh, archaeological digs or paleoanthropological expeditions, actually looking for human fossils in in Tanzania. And during that time, I was able to travel a certain amount in Africa as well. And um, then I was fortunate to get a Rhodes Scholarship, which um, got me to Oxford. And um, I had been contemplating a shift in what I was studying. Um, it wasn't as radical in some ways as you might think to international affairs, history and international affairs, because to me it, uh, it was sort of another version of life as National Geographic magazine, <laughs> in, <laughs> in the sense that uh, in the sense that it was all about uh, all about uh, different parts of the world and trying to have a sense of fascination with with how the world works. So, did you get um, it, a Rhodes as like an uh, in your application? Were you sort of pitching uh, like a PhD in like human evolution? You know, yes, actually, um, actually, I was. I um, I was going to. Um, Continue studying. I had I had done um, I'd worked with a wonderful um, professor at uh, Stanford who uh, uh, remained a mentor and um, and actually was in contact with him for a while and occasionally see him back at the Stanford reunions. Um, but a guy named William Durham and 
Um, under him, I did a self-design major on genetics and culture and human evolution. And so that's what I was going to uh, continue. Uh, I was thinking about re- uh, working on when I got to Oxford. But genetics and I'd culture also, and human evolution? Human evolution. What was your, exactly. what was your like, undergrad thesis? Uh, it was on uh, it was on culture as an evolutionary system. Like it what was your was, examples? Like what was your case? Yeah, that, so the, it was on. It was basically it was on. Uh, it was on basically toward an evolutionary view of human culture. And the idea was, it's funny. This was back in the mid 1980s, and the the notion of memes, which are now uh, sort of quite commonplace, had just been introduced a few years before by Richard Dawkins. Um, and um, the idea was that you could take. Um, uh, you could you could think about uh, what distinguished humanity was obviously a, a, a capacity for culture, but it also en- enabled humans to evolve extraordinarily quickly in a manner that um, that vastly outpaced obviously any sort of uh, uh, evolution by natural selection operating in human genes. So the question was, could you think about culture as a an independent parallel mechanism of of evolution and what were the units of inheritance, and in other words, instead of genes, memes? Uh, what, how did the, how was it transmitted, uh, either not just across generations but within generations? What were the forces of selection operating on it? And then, uh, you know, how did this uh, how did uh, how how did this relate to um, to you know where where human institutions had gone? And so I was that that was the stuff I was really fascinated with and. But I had also always been fascinated with international affairs and um, and world politics, and so when I got to Oxford, I agonized a bit. But I ended up doing I wanted to do international relations, and I hadn't really had any uh, for quite some time. And uh, so I did a, a one year master's in modern European imperial history, and then I uh, did a master's and then doctorate in international relations. But it's funny, I actually occasionally come back to the evolutionary stuff. I actually did a chapter in a book on uh, on the evolution of international norms which built on some of the earlier evolutionary work so so what I, let, let's it, talk, that, that's fascinating I was, that was like leading into my next question what like what's an example of like the evolution of international norms like the cultural evolution of, of international norms that, that you described in your chapter well yeah I mean well some sometimes I mean I, I would say that the evolution of, uh, of sort of uh, taboos against for instance um, the, the chemical weapons for instance or um, uh, the um, uh, the ideas and, and taboos against slavery. Uh, in some cases, I think, um, and, and or trafficking in people, for instance. In, in some cases, I mean, the, the question is, where do these new norms come from? In some cases, I think um, there's uh, sort of a moral revulsion that uh, that happens that uh, that people. Uh, begin to see things as being sort of beyond the pale, and there are a bunch of different mechanisms that can make uh, that occur. And particular, and, and and I think those mechanisms are changing a little bit as um, societies become, as societies and also um, uh, a world society, if you will, begins to um, develop a. Uh, I wouldn't want to say sort of a global consciousness, but there, there, there is a, there has been. Um, I think a, a, a change in which in the past uh, global norms were largely agreed upon by in a very state-centric fashion um, in which uh, you know 
countries would have norms or conventions of diplomacy, for instance, and international law sort of um, accreted gradually and customary international law would arise over over uh, decades and, and, and generations, even centuries. What's interesting now is that um, as the pace of information and data um, flows uh, more greatly and as non-state actors um, non-governmental organizations, global advocacy networks, and other types of entities become increasingly important. What you what you begin to find is that um, is that there's an effort for norms, or or that there's a, a phenomena where norms or alleged norms are being uh, generated and declared very very uh, very very quickly. One of the questions is whether or not you know a norm is a norm is something that implies an ought uh, or a should, and um, there are major questions as to you know when when an idea or an aspiration actually gains the status uh, of being a norm. Um, for instance, I'll use an example. One of the big transformations in um, in the in the notion of sovereignty um, is the notion that sovereignty is contingent, right? So you, you have you've had yeah. it. Yeah, you so shouldn't you kill should, your own you know, people, you, uh, right? Exactly. Or you might so, lose your right. So you to should, you shouldn't kill your own people. Right, exactly. Or you, or you shouldn't be um, sponsoring terrorism, or you, or pursuing weapons of mass destruction uh, in contravention to your your principles. There are a number of different or your commitments. There are a number of different uh, uh, areas, but one of the one of the most um, compelling justifications for contingent sovereignty is the fact that you know we've lived in a in a, a sovereign state system for a long time, but there's always been tensions between that and the and and the the fundamental rights of individuals, you know, as they were sort of a sidelight of the UN Charter, but then with the UN Declaration of Human Rights and all these other international conventions have become sort of more and more, um, more and more noteworthy. Now, obviously, in the the aftermath of the, um, of of Rwanda and Bosnia and then Kosovo, there was a real move to try to say, look, there have have to be uh, some, uh, some qualifications to sovereignty implies responsibility. And it was a really interesting shift because in the past, there had been debates about humanitarian intervention and when, w- w- under what circumstances mm-hmm. uh, should you be uh, entitled to intervene. Um, this changed the frame a little bit to um, sovereignty as uh, responsibility. And mm-hmm. Francis Dang at Brookings and a number of other people had work, worked on this stuff. And the, so very, very quickly, um, this notion of the responsibility to protect became accepted in the space of just a few years uh, and all UN member states, uh, thanks to the work of people like Gareth Evans, former Australian foreign minister, etc. He's been on this show. All, all, yeah. Uh, yeah, he has. Yeah, been, we yeah, talked yeah, about yeah, the 2005 uh, adoption uh, at the United right, Nations exactly, of the R2P. Exactly, yeah. of R2P. And so this has been, um, this is a, sort of a tremendous mm-hmm. example of um, of of norms. Uh, another one would be the ban. Obviously, the, the one of the most famous ones is the the land uh, the the mine ban treaty. Yeah. Um, which was uh, which which came into force. Now again, to some degree, though, if you look at R2P, uh, and you know, a lot of people have written on on R2P, and and uh, and the question is, if, if is it is it a norm that's still in force? How much does it have to be? Does a norm have to be um, uh, fulfilled or uh, respected? Um, and and how many violations uh, does it take before? Uh, people say, "Well, R2P is RIP, right?" <laughs> and and uh, 
So that's one of the real dilemmas with when you have a major normative shift like this is is, is what's the follow through like? Uh, and Syria ha- and the, Lib- the aftermath of Libyan intervention in Syria has had some people at least question whether or not that norm retains the same vitality as, uh, as it so, should. So going back to Oxford, did, did these ideas form the basis of your uh, PhD? You know, not really. At the time, I think, you know, it's funny. I feel like uh, I've, I've had sort of three different phases in, in my career. Um, but, but back then, I was really interested in, um, you know, it was at the time, to some degree, what I've studied has been a little bit the, the uh, you know, a little bit of either autobiography or at least of a, a factor of what was going on at the time. I started my um, uh uh, defil uh, my, my my the British equivalent PhD at a uh, time when of uh, sort of uni- American unity polarity and everybody's talking about um, U.S. Uh, leadership and I was interested in the concept of followership and um, wh- and the degree to which a leader requires followers you know and this was the time that Joe Nye was coming out with Bound to Lead and things like that and so I st- I actually looked at a a um, was this largely historical, but it was looking at U.S. plans for uh, the post-war order and um, and the degree to, I, wanted, I was interested in, well, how, a lot of it had been written about sort of U.S. Uh, and, and British negotiations over the contours of, say, Bretton Woods or or the United Nations, uh, the, you know, the, uh, and, and uh, what was the ill-fated uh, International Trade Organization, etc., but I was very interested in a much more fractious relationship, and that was a relationship between the United States and France. And partly, again, this goes back a little bit to biography. In fact, we had lived in France when I was young. My my parents were, were Francophiles um, to some degree. And so I um, I wanted to look at this relationship, and I'd always been fascinated also with the relationship between de Gaulle and the United States and the sort of competing universalism that France embodied. And because it's very interesting, you know, that we have the um, the Constitution of De- and the Declaration of Independence. They have the Declaration of the Rights of Man, etc., and uh, and their own sort of universalist tradition. And so, um, so in some ways, I think that's one reason why we we we're always quite you know we we sort of have a love hate relationship with the French in part. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, you I, yeah. you, you so found love- the 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 um, historical anecdotes of of the frenemy relationship between the United States and and France. I like that. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. No, it's a, it's a very much of a fact. And also, I think it actually the United States and France. It's, it's interesting. The other thing that, with the exception of Cajuns in Louisiana, um, what's interesting is that um, France, unlike virtually every other um, European nation, does not really have a diaspora community in the United States, which I think has been, uh, which has been very, um, which has, has made the relationship. Uh, even more problematic than if you think of other uh, immigrant mm-hmm. communities in the United States. A, from, a few communities anyway. in Northern but Maine. My, but my, yeah. Right, exactly right. But so my, uh, my, uh, so the, this station was basically looked at that. And um, I ended up later, um, only about, probably about, I mean, I wrote, did a couple of articles or chapters uh, out of it. I didn't do a book out of it. But later on, um, the first book, the uh, first real um, sort of substantive book that I did, um, built on a bit of that, and it was called The Best Laid Plans, The Origins of American Multilateralism in the Dawn of the Cold War. And that basically looked at um, at how the United uh, at, at this, this period, a really um, significant period um, from 1940 to 1950, where U.S. world order building, in effect, switched twice. It went from 
uh, laying plans for what I would call an open world, or what was referred to as one world at the time, to basically the, the onset of the Cold War. And what do you do with your plans for multilateral cooperation when suddenly there are, as, as Charles Bull and the U.S. Um, U.S. diplomat said, in, in short, there are two worlds instead of one. And what do you do with that? And so the question was, in my mind, was how did the United States adapt its ideas about multilateralism to the world of containment? And so that's what I really, um, really delved into. And I, um, and and uh, that was a lot of that was a lot of fun to write. I had written that was a uh, uh, that was a, a probably about uh, eight or eight or eight or so years ago or seven or eight years ago. But um, uh, I'd also done some work at um, after Oxford. I was at the Center on International Cooperation. At yeah, the University NYU outlet, it. right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And I worked on a, I did a, I managed a couple projects there, which were very interesting. I did a lot of research on on those. Uh, uh, and that, there was a couple of edited books that I did. One of them was on um, uh, donor support or the inter- support of the international community for post conflict reconstruction before it was cool, right? Yeah, <laughs> so in, this, that, yeah. in the 1990s, looking looking so, at looking at that. And the other one was on on multilaterals in the U.S. foreign policy. Ambivalent engagement was the subtitle, um, uh, which was looking at why the United States has had uh, such a tough time, uh, in a sense, uh, with multilateral commitments, so ambivalent. So h- how did you end up at the State Department? Right. Uh, I ended up, it's also, it was a bit ironic for me for me to be there at, at the time that I was there as well, but which I'll get into. But um, I um, was at, uh, as I said, at this think tank at New York University, and I um, applied for a fellowship, which the Council on Foreign Relations, my current employer, uh, gives out. Uh, it doesn't necessarily give them the people at the Council on Foreign Relations, but it um, it it's an international affairs fellowship, which is a, just a wonderful thing for people in their 30s uh, to contemplate. Um, it allows you to go, I guess I would say, from the world of working for a living to the world of ideas, or the world of ideas to the world of working for a living. And I went in the latter. I had been... Um, studying uh, U.S. foreign policy and international cooperation, international institutions. Uh, but uh, it, this basically gave me a year to go work in the government somewhere. And I said I wanted to look at uh, multilateral peace building and peacekeeping operations. And, and so I initially had uh, applied to go to the National Security Council, um, but uh, and I got one of the fellowships, but I initially applied to go to the NSC, but under Condi Rice, they were not taking um, one-year fellows. And so I ended up at a place which ended up being, frankly, better for me, um, which was working uh, at the policy planning staff at the State Department, which is uh, basically like the internal think tank. And so, so this was when Secretary Powell was um, was there, and it was a fascinating, um, bewildering... So it was probably what, like around uh, the, the early... What year did you join? Yeah, so I joined. I mean, it was I joined a, almost exactly a year after nine eleven. So and as as they were so ramping up sept- then for the a, as, of as we were ramping up, yeah. yeah, as the United States was ramping up for um, uh, the uh, what became the invasion of uh, of Iraq, of Iraq and, uh, sorry, and the yeah. um, and the removal of um, uh, Saddam Hussein, and um, I did not work on that topic, and um, actually, frankly, I didn't have a, a clearances until about sort of um, the February of that year, but. Um, it was an absolutely fascinating time for me, not without a little bit of cognitive dissonance, I have to say, because 
you know, I had just finished a big project on the importance of multilateral cooperation and the, the dangers of unilateralism, et cetera. And so um, here I was um, at a time when, you know, people like Chris Patton, I was the external affairs commissioner for the European Union, was warning that the United States was going into uh, unilateralist uh, overdrive. Um, but, um, you know, without sort of revisiting all of the... Um, you know, successes and failures of that era. Um, and uh, it, it, I mean, it was a really fascinating thing. I would say that if there were two things that I learned that, that about U.S. foreign policy that I had not been uh, nearly cognizant enough, it was um, two things. One of them is the power of ideology um, in terms of informing people's worldviews about the way the world works or the way in their mind it should work. And the other thing that I learned um, was the power of bureaucratic politics. I was, <laughs> I had learned about, I had learned that where you stand depends on where you sit. And when you're a master, ide- when you're an ideologue <laughs> and a master bureaucratic politician, yeah. like say John, bureaucratic Burke, politics, exactly. In my, in my, uh, in my, it was a, it was. I, I will have to say that the, the policy planning staff when I was there. And, and frankly, my my current boss, Richard Haas, uh, was the um, he was the director for the first nine months that I was there. And then a, 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 another boss, um, a wonderful guy named Mitchell Reese, was um, uh, was uh, his successor. And I enjoyed working for both of them. But I uh, and it was one of the great things about it was that the policy planning staff was a uh, a um, an intellectual free fire zone in a otherwise, in my view, um, much more ideological uh, administration. I guess so, I would I would, so, I would so say that. Can and you part, tell yeah. me any sort of specific moments or examples where you had those two realizations they described before that ideology is is very important, that bureaucratic politics is very important? Like when was there a moment yes, that I, made I, you I, realize? I, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, any ideology. One of the, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was, we were sort of talk, there was a question of talk, of talking points that were, you know, you, one of the things you have to do, which is just incredibly annoying at, at, uh, within the State Department, is that, you know, the, and, and the interagency in general is just the, the clearance process where, and we actually were very fortunate, the policy planning staff, because we could write memos that were draft them, and then they would be sent up by the director of policy planning directly to the State Department, to, to the Secretary of State, or any other. Uh, State Department official without getting them cleared from other bureaus. But we also had responsibilities uh, for clearing on other people's, uh, they, they would send them around, circulate from memos from different departments, and we to some degree mirrored the internal organization of the State Department so that there would, for instance, I was covering, I inherited, which was fascinating, the Afghanistan portfolio, um, notwithstanding my somewhat um, uh, great ignorance of the of the topic at the time. Um, this is the the way <laughs> the way, alas, uh, often the U.S. government works. If you if you are a warm body, um, uh, you often get thrown into things. Um, and I try not to embarrass myself uh, or uh, too badly. But um, but I do recall, in terms of the ideological aspect of things. At one point, we're asked to clear on some uh, language that had to do with, um, you know, Iraq has now joined Afghanistan as a front line in the global war on terrorism, something along those lines. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, these are talking points to, to address to the Germans. And so my comment was... I don't think this is going to be particularly helpful. I have to say that, you know, I think that this isn't, um, this is not a good idea. And one of the responses I got back from an ideologue was, I think the president made it perfectly clear in his, in his speech last week that, that, that Iraq had joined uh, Afghanistan in the global war on terrorism. And my response was, well, yeah, but we're the guys with the tin cup who were, this was all basically to try to get the Germans to pony up some assistance for 
Afghanistan, and yet they were throwing in this sort of spurious connection to Iraq, which was actually going to undermine our diplomacy, and yet it was more important to this particular person that, that we be consistent in our ideology. I, I can't, I, I actually, I don't, I actually, I'm not, I'm not going to, I mean, I don't, I don't, it wasn't any, it wasn't, you know, uh, any, anybody that would be a bold-faced name, so, uh, but it was, uh, you know, just somebody in one of the bureaus of political military affairs or something like that. Uh, but I just remember thinking, Wow, that's really uh, that's really something. And um, on the bureaucratic uh, politics side of things, what what about that? Yeah, that, that, that's always politics, fascinates me. Yes, I mean, I I do have to I do have to say that yeah, on the bureaucratic politics, one of the things that I was able to do, um, and again, I don't want to exaggerate my uh, influence in it, but uh, one of the most fascinating things I was able to do was to um, was to get involved in thinking in the aftermath of some of the shortcomings of. Um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of the post-war planning or lack thereof or lack of using of the post-war planning that was done uh, was to think about, okay, one of the big problems among many uh, with the sort of uh, Bremer experiment in the coalition provisional authority in Iraq and also some of the aspects of Af- Afghanistan reconstruction was that there was not a cadre of civilians who could be deployed to post-conflict environments. And that's probably true you know, even if you're doing lower level, you know, uh, I'm not sure we're going to do Afghanistan and Iraq anymore, but uh, that sort of level of, uh, of engagement. So mm-hmm. the idea so the idea was, can we set up an office uh, at the State Department? Now, it, it's, it's, it eventually You're referring to what bureau. became CSRS. Yes. Yeah, yeah, SCRS. SCRS, right, exactly. right, right, right. Sorry, that's the acronym yeah, of that of the. That's the acronym. Yeah, S is for secretary, and then CRS was uh, uh, conflict reconstruction and stabilization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, so, and it's now called uh, CSO, uh, yeah. uh, conflict and stability operations. And it's a it's a fully fledged bureau. And so I was actually able to participate in the creation of a bureaucratic entity. Which so there's that was absolutely fascinating and uh, helped. The person who ended up heading that office, uh, Carlos Pasquale, who later became um, vice president of, of Brookings and uh, and also ambassador of Mexico and a number of other things, but um, a very very talented, extraordinary. Talented, I, I remember uh, following that that uh, at the time, uh, and I remember it sort of falling prey to fighting between the Pentagon and the State Department. Yes, I mean there were a number of bureaucratic things that went on. Well, the first was there was bureaucratic politics in creating it because. Suddenly, there was just people came out of the woodwork saying, "You can't have this office doing that. That's what we do." And, and so, you know, the it, Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement was very unhappy that this this uh, bureau was going to be doing anything having to do with sort of police training or um, or coordinating that. And there was huge questions about how operational it should become or not. And that you know, every once in a while, we were in a fortunate position since I was at the policy planning staff to be able to. We could sort of, in a sense, hold things up or block things up. And I remember getting occasionally emails from people saying, "Nice, you know, nice stick in the spokes, way, way to go," <laughs> or that sort of thing. When I had weighed in on something, but then when the office was created, um, uh, it just in, in, and I didn't work for the office, but I, I followed it for a while after I had left and gone to the Center for Global Development, and um, I uh, was just routinely amazed. It had, you know, the president had signed, President Bush had signed a national security presidential directive basically saying this office is designated as the civilian lead for post-conflict reconstruction and also even for conflict prevention planning, contingency planning. And yet the reality of the situation was that the, that the power within the State Department resides in and probably always will reside in, which you know makes sense, within the regional bureaus. The people who actually deal with the countries, right? And so, you, if you have a functional office, 
uh, they can provide some services, and if they can be of some use to the relevant assistant secretary, uh, that is great. But um, uh, what what happened was that the office was really not allowed often to play on particular on big issues like a country like Pakistan, for instance, at least for a long time, uh, or big countries in Africa, for instance. But you know, you could do some work in Burkina Faso or in Sri Lanka, perhaps, <laughs> in, if you're in South Asia. And so that was, uh, it was fascinating. Um, the, other, the other thing that I learned, which is not really bureaucratic politics so much, was one of the big problems was that Congress would simply not fund, uh, um, uh, would not provide an office with contingency funding if it was a civilian agency. There was no problem. I mean, the, the Defense Department could get whatever it wanted uh, because it was partly because virtually every congressional district has a defense installation or a military base or contractor in it. Uh, it's a very, very difficult to build a constituency for um, civilian, either USAID or State Department, despite the fact that you know people like Secretary Gates and and many, many uniformed officers say we would we're dying for uh, capable civilians. So. This one question uh, about like the con- constituency for the State Department that, that's always fascinated me um, is, is a question that's always fascinated me. And, and I, I was sort of following a lot of the debates that you just described about the creation of the Civilian Stabilization uh, Bureau. Um, so when Hillary Clinton became the Secretary of State, I sort of expected that there to be more of a constituency for the State Department. Because here you have arguably like the highest profile secretary of state, the most politically powerful secretary of state sort of ever. Um, And now, you know, we're speaking just the day after she clinched the Democratic nomination. Um, But yet that sort of the fundamentals of sort of State Department funding and and sort of the lack of there being any meaningful constituency in in the public or, or in Congress for the State Department sort of didn't change at all. Absolutely. No, she was, you know, she, uh, I, I have to say that, um, Secretary, I don't know so much about the reputation of uh, Condi Rice within the State Department, but there's no question that, um, that Secretary Powell went very strongly in for, because he understood the need for training and uh, having been in the military and uh, for, so he did a lot of things that actually helped the State Department uh, personnel and, you know, sort of treated his uh, assistant secretaries as his you know, field generals, etc. Um, similarly, with um, Secretary Clinton, um, her notion of, uh, of smart power and the importance of um, really uh, changing um, uh, patterns of investment, she and you know she tried with uh, excuse me I should say patterns of investment said there was more uh, invested in frankly civilian capabilities that were really the ones that you need mm-hmm. um, and to uh, around the world to do all manner of things not simply sort of operational post conflict things but but just uh, e- even to have more um, a bigger float if you will so that you know you can get training all the time to learn new skills etc. Uh, and uh, but she and uh, Bob Gates, they they tried to uh, come up with this notion of a unified national security budget, not in formal terms, um, because of course one of the big problems is that there's the committee structure on Capitol Hill is you know there's Armed Services Committee and then there's you know um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee or the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. What that means is that you're never going to be able to go up and and have a single unified budget that would really make it. Um, apparent that these are all geared towards U.S. national security, but you know they 
they they went up. They gave joint testimony, um, etc. I just think that um, first of all, I think you, you probably will have to convince particularly more um, more more folks on the Republican side that um, that these sorts of investments are warranted. And I think that you actually would probably get a better chance of getting that. I mean, unless you had Democratic control of you know both houses, you probably would get a better chance of getting that sort of an arrangement with a, a credible. Um, uh, Republican president in, in in the sense that there's sort of a Nixon going to China aspect of mm-hmm. things. If, if you can get a, um, to use that cliche, if you can get um, a, a Republican to really um, make the case um, that, that this sort of investment is absolutely needed. But um, yeah, it's, it's enormously frustrating. So we are just about out of time. Anything else you want to plug before uh, I let you go? Anything else you're working on we can look out for in the future? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully within the next year, I, uh, or better in the next year, I'll be finishing a book on um, the uh, future of American sovereignty in an age of globalization. And the idea here is that um, I think so, so many of the things that have been written about American sovereignty tend to be extraordinarily overheated and, um, and uh, about how uh, international cooperation, in a sense, implies a loss of American sovereignty. Yeah, you should, you should read the comments to uh, UN Dispatch. Trust me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I know I you're talking about. Well, I, 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 get, I get some very colorful uh, ones myself running a, a quote-unquote global governance program, although I have to say it's global governance, not global government, so uh, don't worry, guys. But, uh, but no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. So I'm looking at, uh, at trying to shed a little bit more light than heat on the, on the sovereignty debate and, uh, and really say that People shouldn't be too alarmist because uh, yeah, there's no danger to the U.S. Constitution and its supremacy, etc. But there, there isn't really a, a challenge at all to constitutional authority. Really, what what the biggest debates really are about the, the sort of bargains we should make between freedom of action on the one hand, uh, which we've we've tended to prize quite a bit, and the actual ability to make real concrete changes in global challenges and that simply requires certain trade-offs that in the past we haven't always been willing to make. And that's, that's my basic bottom line. But, uh, so look forward to the next year or so. All right. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. Hey, it was great. Real pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.